For the record, this is probably the longest homily I'm ever going to give in my life. T.S. Eliot once wrote that the good lack all conviction while the evil are filled with passionate intensity. Another poet once said, some men die by the sword and some go down in flames, but most men perish inch by inch in play and stupid games. We lack fire as a church. We lack fire because we lack love. Somebody said last night to me, they said, isn't it a shame that the church isn't full? And it is a shame. But it's your job. It's your job to take what you've learned here, to take Christ who is given to you daily sometimes in the Eucharist, if not weekly, and take him out to the world. Your faith is not just in this church. It is meant to be taken from this church into the world and to set the world on fire. But Catholicism lacks fire because it lacks love. I have heard it said that so many people are unhappy because they are not loved. People are unhappy because they don't love. They don't risk it all. They play it safe and perish inch by inch in the little games and the petty pursuits of the world. We want to be just good enough, but Jesus will never let that happen. As I've said before, he's calling us to change, to change, to change. That, that echo of the Lord's voice should be in your heart every day. And C.S. Lewis said, God is easy to please, but he's hard to satisfy. He is so pleased with every little thing that you do, but he is never going to be satisfied until you are with him forever. And so you will keep hearing that change, change, change. He's calling us out of the ordinariness of life that I spoke about last night. Now, don't you kind of hate that about God? I mean, maybe I shouldn't have said it. Maybe I should rephrase that. Doesn't that bother you about God that he just won't leave you alone? There's a great poem by Thompson called The Hound of Heaven. He just won't let you go. He keeps hounding and hounding to have you change. You know, it's like us priests. We're constantly calling people to change. I had a parishioner come up to me after Mass one time. He said, Father, I swear every week you tell me to change. And I said, well, if you'd change, I'd stop telling you. But why do we have to change? Why does it have to keep going? Can't we just be good enough? Do we really have to be perfect? The answer is no. We cannot be just good enough. And yes, we must be perfect. We are called, as Jesus said, to be perfect as my heavenly Father is perfect. But do you take him seriously on that? Or do we kind of pick and choose what scriptures we like to hear? Which ones make us feel good? Or do we take him at his word in the totality of the scriptures? I want to encourage you tonight to take him seriously. 
He told us everything that he did to save us, to help us, not to ruin our life. I swear in my own life, that's what I was, I was totally convicted that as the Lord drew closer and closer to me, that he was going to ruin my life. He was going to take away all the fun. But he has not taken away anything. He has made my life more exciting than I ever could have possibly imagined. When he leads, when I lead, it gets boring. Because you know what? We're boring. I'm boring. You're boring. The human race as a whole is boring. C.S. Lewis, he said, how mundane all the tyrants of the world, but how gloriously different all God's saints. When we're living out God's plan for us, totally unique. When we're living out our plan for us, it's the same as everybody else. Get what you can. It's about you. Do your own thing. The first reason that we need to take him seriously and why we constantly need to change is because there is an evil principle inside of us. And if it's not kept in check, it will slowly and gradually pull us down. How many people do you know How many people do you know that left the Catholic Church because they reasoned their way out of it? They looked at the totality of the church, they looked at everything we teach, they looked at Christ himself, and then they said, no, I don't believe any of it. I don't know any. How do people leave the church? Inch by inch in play and stupid games. Oh, it's just so hard to get to Sunday Mass. It's so hard to pray. Confession, it's just impossible. The times. I one time had a guy say that to me. He's like, I said, you need to go to confession. It's been forever. He's like, yeah, the times don't work. I said, let's do it right now. Well, I couldn't. I could Oh, so now the time doesn't work for you. Inch by inch. We Christians, I don't think we lose our souls so much because of the evil we do. It's because of the good that we fail to do. I don't know about you, but in our world, don't you just feel like you're always backed into a corner just simply trying to defend the church? It's like we can't even get out to do the good that we need to do. We're just trying to defend her. We fail to put out into the deep to get out of the boat, to walk on water, to drop the nets and really follow him. How many times in the Gospels do we hear it say, you did not do this, or you did not do that? Think about the parable of the talents. What did the guy with one talent do? It's your turn. What did he do with the one talent? Buried it. He didn't do anything. Did he do anything bad? No. He just didn't do anything good. And do we take God seriously when he tells a story about the man who buried the talent and he says the master came to him and said, take the talent from him and give it to the one with ten and get this worthless servant out of my face. I mean, like, these are serious words. And I don't think we like to think of Jesus like that. Because as I said last night, we've domesticated him, tamed him, made him into something less than who he is. So avoiding evil is not enough. You remember the rich, the rich young man, <clears throat> that story from the Gospels? 
Did the rich young man do anything bad? No, in fact, he did a ton of good. He said, Master, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said, you know, keep the commandments. And he, you know, he labels a few of the commandments, and the young man's like, I, that's right, I do that. I avoid evil. And Jesus looked at him, and it's one of my favorite lines of the gospel, and it says he loved him. He loved, God loves every little movement towards him. But then he says, you lack only one thing. Do good. Let go of that and do good. And it doesn't say that the rich young man went away an atheist. It doesn't say that the rich young man went away angry. It said that the rich young man went away sad. He was sad. Because he would rather stay in the ordinariness of life than take that high spiritual journey of abandonment to the intensity of God's love. St. Therese of the Child Jesus once said, if God is holding out his hand asking for something, his hand isn't empty. He doesn't want to just rip stuff away from you. I call this, it might be the only original thing I ever came up with as a priest, I call it the theology of negation. I believed it for a long time. <clears throat> the theology of negation is this, that God simply wants to just tear everything away from you until you have nothing but Him. And then He just disappears in the dark night of the soul and you're left in utter desolation and darkness. I mean, who would want to do that? We got to follow the theology of love. That if God wants us to give up anything, it's simply to make us greater lovers. To set the world on fire. St. Ignatius of Loyola said, progress in the spiritual life is directly proportionate to your desire to give things up out of love for God. You want to move further in the spiritual life? Ask the Lord what He desires from you. Just like that rich young man. What's the one thing Maybe for some of us, it's like the ten things. <laughs> but what's the first one? We have to be reckless. We have to waste our lives in service of love. Because that's what Jesus asks of us. But do we take him seriously? The funny thing is, is that we teach kids to be reckless in almost every aspect of life except the faith. When it comes to the faith, play it safe. I learned this. I, I do this thing called people watching without sounding too creepy or weird. <laughs> I like to just watch people and what they do. You can learn a lot about humanity. And about two summers ago, I was just, I was floored by this. How parents really teach their kids to be incredibly reckless and incredibly dangerous. But they don't do it in the faith. And the way I saw this portrayed is there's a family that I know back in North Dakota. They have a lake cabin, and they occasionally invite me to come to the lake. And they have this big, huge wakeboarding boat. Do you know what wakeboarding boats are? They're these massive... They have like 400 horsepower engines. Literally, like when you say go, you're just out of the water skiing. They're so powerful. And so we were sitting there, and we were having a blast on the tubes. Because the kids love to watch us, my brother and I. We battle on the tubes and get hurt all the time. 
but they love it. And so at one point we said, you know what? Why don't you guys go? And they're like, like their faces were like, no. And I watched the dad and the mom like, yeah, get out there. Get on that too. And so this poor little kid, he's like nine years old, right? Eight years old. He's on this tube in a life jacket that's too big for him <laughs> behind a 400 horsepower boat. And what do we train the kid to say when they're ready to go? Hit it! <laughs> what? <laughs> that's insane. How about, Dad, please slowly speed up the boat at a manageable speed so I feel safe. <laughs> no, hit it. I mean, to the point when he throws down the hammer, that kid almost launched out of the water and onto the beach. And then, this is the best part, the kid's hanging on, going, what's the dad's primary objective at this point? To get the kid off the tube. That's what makes tubing fun. How do you do it? You go really fast and take some real sharp turns. And eventually the kid goes skipping across the water. And they're kind of bobbing up and down, white face, shaking. And as we all pull up in a boat, what do we say to the kid? That was awesome! And the kid gets a kind of a smile, we're like, do it again! He's like, yeah! And his dad's like, you're the man! And I'm sitting here and as I'm watching this whole thing, I'm like, and it isn't just in tubing. <laughs> it's in football. It's in band. It's in all these things where, like, you gotta go all in. You gotta be the best. Except when it comes to the faith. Then we say, it should just be part of your life. When in fact, it's the most important thing. So we can't just avoid evil. We gotta be reckless, we gotta waste our lives. Because when you love recklessly, nothing can stop you. It's what changed the world 2,000 years ago. Remember, it only took 12 men, 12 uneducated men, to flip the Roman Empire on its head. Everybody's talking about the United States needs to change. If we could get 12 people <laughs> to be all in like those apostles, we could flip America on its head. Twelve uneducated men, as I said. It wasn't their degrees that won over the Roman Empire. It wasn't their ability to teach doctrine. It was truth grounded in love. That's what changed the world. And you know what holds us back? <clears throat> At least what I think holds us back. I think it's just simply we want control. We've always wanted control. From the very beginning, we want control of our lives. We want insurance to know that if I take this next step, Jesus, that it's going to be okay. And the Lord's saying, come, walk on water. And we're like, yeah, but if I step, will I really hit on hard surface or will I sink? Trust me. But Jesus, I got to know. And we never get out of the boat. We never walk on the water. Because we want insurance instead of assurance. We don't take the assurance that God is serious. That he really will provide. 
All of life is a choice. And you can either choose to take control or you can lose control and walk by the light of faith. I remember I went to, uh, do you guys know the band U2? <laughs> Maybe, I don't know, Bono, he wears the purple sunglasses, you know. It's like the longest running band ever in history, I swear, and they're still really good. So I had a chance to see U2 in concert because I'm a huge U2 fan. This is, uh, I think I said at the beginning, I am affectionately known in my diocese as the vacation director not the vocation director. <clears throat> and uh, when I tell stories like this, people seem to uh, think that I am indeed the vacation director, but it was all from Jesus, I promise. I'll tell you later if you want to know about it. Anyway, I ended up at this concert. And as, as Bono came out, at the beginning of the show, I think every, at least everybody that I could see was holding up their phones, filming him, and I was sitting there and I'm like, you're missing the concert. But they want control. They don't want to just enjoy. They want to capture the moment and seize it and hang on to it. And by trying to do that, it just slips away from them. And that's why people use social media to post all this stupid stuff. Because they want to control their lives. But in the end, we really have no control but we like to pretend we do. And when we try to control our lives, we miss so much. Oh, do we miss stuff. We miss God's work all the time. I want to give you an example, and I tell you this story not because like, oh, you know, Father Waltz, he thinks he's pretty holy and stuff. I tell you this because every once in a while, this idiot, he gets it right, okay? And I want to share it with you because I think the Lord wants me to share it with you. I was coming back from uh, New York City. I had, it was on a three-week trip, which I will never do again in my entire life. It was horrible. And I was on the last leg, and I was coming in, and it was Wednesday. The Wednesday before Thanksgiving. And as I landed in Minneapolis, it was snowing. And I was like, this isn't good. Because there was a huge storm moving in. And as we were sitting in the gate area... And by the way, I don't know if you know this, but... Um, the devil, he owns a company in this world. It's called Delta. He owns that company. <clears throat> and so we were in the gate area. And this guy was sitting there. And he was, you know, looking very flustered. Because, you know, everybody wants to get home for Thanksgiving. And at one point, he gets off the phone. He gets on the mic. He said, folks... Great news, the plane is inbound. I know it's a little delayed. We're gonna get it on the ground, pull it up, turn this thing around and get you home for Thanksgiving. And it erupted in cheers. People started really cheering, clapping. And so I was like, oh, thank you, Jesus. Cause see, when things go well, it's easy to say, thank you, Jesus. Cause Jesus, you're looking out for me now cause I know I'm gonna get home. Well, as the plane pulls up, people start getting off and all of a sudden the pilot gets off. And I'm like, wait a second, if we're supposed to turn this baby around and get home, <laughs> why is the pilot getting off the plane? And I could see the pilot talking. And he was talking to the gate agent. You could see the gate agent's face just fall. And he gets on and he says, folks, I, I don't know how to tell you this, but the pilot's logged too many hours. We have to cancel the flight. And I know if there would have been stones in the gate area, we would have stoned this man to death. And this guy standing next to me, he says, out loud, 
He says, apparently, Delta doesn't care that they're ruining my Thanksgiving. And I looked at him, and I didn't say this, but what I wanted to say is, listen, buddy, Thanksgiving isn't your holiday. It's all of our holidays. So let's be clear about something. Delta ruined everybody's Thanksgiving, not just yours. But internally, I was like, you know what? And this is just responding to grace. Sometimes it happens. I was like, Jesus, there's nothing I can do about this. So let me just see you in the midst of this. And then I took off running as fast as I could to the reticketing counter to get front, in front of every person <laughs> that I could. And as I was running, as the whole mob's running, and I'm faster than them, I was on, I don't know what you guys call them, I call them walkivators. They're the one, you know, they're the escalate, like we're so lazy now that we have to float along the floor. <laughs> but I got on one of those and I was running, so I was making double time. And I looked over and there was this guy and he was in a wheelchair and he had half fallen out of his wheelchair. He was obviously paralyzed from the waist down. He had half fallen out. And as I looked at him, I was like, man, can you believe that? This poor guy, and there's not a Christian in this airport that's going to stop and help him as I'm still running. <clears throat> and then I looked again, and I was like, this is insane, because people were just walking around him. I'm like, this is crazy. I'm like, Jesus, for crying out loud, you'd think there'd be one Christian here that could help this man. And as I stepped off the walk of Vader, I just heard this voice internally. Just a good Samaritan. And I stopped dead in my tracks. And I remembered from that parable that one of the people that walked around the man who had been beaten was the priest. And so I sat there and I said, you know what, this is stupid. And so I went over and I went to this guy and I'm like, hey buddy, I was like, can I help you? And he looked at me and he had like the most childlike, he was the sweetest man I maybe have ever met in my life. And he's like, yeah, I fell out of my chair. <laughs> and so I, like, I'm trying to lift him up and help him, and I get him strapped back in. And I'm like, can I push you to your gate or help you? And he's like, he's like, no, 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 I'm fine, thank you. And he was looking down, strapped, and I grabbed his shoulders. And I said to him, I said, brother, have a beautiful Thanksgiving. And he looked up at me. And I don't know how this all works, the theology of it, but I know I was staring into the face of Jesus himself. And he looked at me, deep into me, with a piercing gaze, and he just said, you too. And he smiled and rolled away. And as I walked away, I'm like, yeah, look who the good Christian is now, you know, like, such an idiot you know but like I was literally floating like I felt so good I'm like I'm, I'm probably not getting home till Christmas at this point <laughs> but I just didn't care like I just I had finally in the midst of I just let go I didn't try to control I just let go and there it was and as I was floating along on the walk of Vader I just heard over the intercom Delta Flight 4886 to Bismarck, North Dakota has been reinstated. Please return to the gate. And I'm like, no way! You know, and then all of a sudden the mob comes back, you know, I'm like, oh. And they're right all around. And I just kind of slowly 
meander back to the gate. As I'm on the little walkivator, I look over and I see this guy at the gate. And he looks at me and I look at him and we make eye contact. And it was just awesome. He smiled, he winked, and he just nodded his head. Now, I don't want to preach a prosperity gospel. In the sense that if you do good things, you know all these good things are going to happen. I just want to point out the fact that if we can get out of our egos, that the Lord will visit us. But we got to ask to see Him. And we got to enter into that craziness of life with eyes of faith. Our egos are so strong. Oh, are they strong? It was one choice that I made, and it brought a lot of beauty to my life. All of life is a choice. We can choose love and mercy, we can choose to take God at His word, or we can choose selfishness, we can choose the ego. But we are creating the image and likeness of God, and that means there are four things that we have. We have an immortal soul. We have free will. We have an intellect. And we are self-determining. And I don't think we think about number four enough. Our choices determine who we are. You are not predestined. At the end of your life, if you hate life, and you're mad, and everybody disowns you, It's your choice what you're going to do at that point. And the choices that you've made in your life have brought you to that point. And so what are you going to choose? I don't think we think enough about the effects of our choice, the eternal effects of our choice. Because every single choice is making you into a type of person. And as Pope Francis said, we're either serving God or we're serving the devil. So who are you serving? How serious are you in your faith? How much do you desire Him? Oftentimes when I think of this self-determining principle, I think of Judas. Jesus chose Judas to be an apostle. He became a traitor. It was his choice. I heard the following story from a priest friend of mine. Usually it's really amazing how quickly we forget history. But when I ask younger crowds about the name of this man, how many know them, nobody knows him. And I bet if I asked you, if you simply just a show of hands, how many of you know who Adolf Eichmann is? Raise your hand if you know Adolf Eichmann. Raise it high. Don't be afraid. Adolf Eichmann was the master of the Holocaust. Everybody knows Adolf Hitler. Everybody, I think, should know Heinrich Himmler. Many people maybe even know Dr. Mengele, the one who experimented on young boys. But few people know Adolf Eichmann, and Eichmann may have been the worst. Adolf Eichmann, as a young boy, He was darker complected, and so he was made fun of in grade school. They called him the little Jew, and he began to dislike Jews, and he made choices 
in which he separated himself from the Jewish people. And there was a wound that was formed deep in his heart, and he made choices out of that wound. As a young man, he was a salesman, an associate. He was good at getting things done. He was excellent at cataloging, keeping things in order. He was originally not even seen by the Nazis. Maybe he was a good man originally, but he became a monster. He was more ruthless than Hitler, more of a tyrant than Himmler. Some people said of him, he was the incarnation of evil itself. After the war, he fled to Argentina, but the Jews managed to find him and brought him back to Israel for trial. During the court hearing, they brought in a man. His name was Yehiel Denur. He was a Jew who was in Auschwitz, and he was to testify against Eichmann. And there's a film clip of the 1961 trial that shows Denur testifying in the courtroom. Eichmann is in a bulletproof case. Imagine how many people wanted him dead. During the trial, Eichmann stares. There's nothing left. He's gone. And Denur is trying to testify. And he refuses to look at Eichmann. But at one point during the trial, he looks and he locks eyes with Eichmann. And from that point on, he can't focus. He begins to shake. He can't answer questions. He starts to like almost look dizzy, and all of a sudden, boom, falls out of the witness stand, passes out. When they came later on to interview Denur, they said to him, what happened? And Denur said, he said, when I looked at Eichmann, I thought I was going to see a monster. I thought I was going to see that terrible, godlike army officer who had sent so many to their deaths. But when I looked at him, I only saw a man, an ordinary man, and I became afraid for myself because Eichmann was human, just like me. And then he summarized his feelings by saying, I realized that Eichmann is in all of us. It is all based on choice. Who you will become. I remember when I was in Poland and when I went to Auschwitz, I think that every human being should have to go there. When you step foot onto the grounds, you feel the weight of evil rest on your shoulders. And when I was there, I walked out and out back by the crematoria, there are these ponds, these murky-looking ponds. And there were, they took all the ashes and dumped them into the ponds. They're massive graveyards of those who have died. And I heard this voice of God. He simply said, never forget, this is what the disordered human heart without me is capable of doing. When you turn away from me, when you make the choice to put me out of your life, this is what you are capable of. The great Russian author Dostoevsky said there are two ages of man. 
from the rise of man to the death of God, and from the death of God to the annihilation of man. I fear to say that we are in the second era of mankind today. Sin always promises more than it gives, takes you further than you wanted to go, and leaves you worse off than you were before. It promises freedom, but it brings slavery. But there is another choice. You'd hate to end a mission on that. There is another choice. To be all in. To take God at his word. To take him seriously, no matter what happens. To choose him every day of your life. To be reckless. Though no matter if it's good or if it's bad, I receive it from the hands of my father. I want to tell you a story about a man who lived this in an extraordinary way. A man that you've never heard of. A man that to this day I still don't know his name. <clears throat> I had an opportunity when I was in seminary. I went to a little place in Ephesus, Turkey. It's called Mary's House. Tradition holds that that's where the Blessed Virgin Mary lived after the crucifixion with St. John until she was assumed into heaven. And underneath the house, there is a spring of water that wells up. And it's been known for many cures, many miraculous healings. And when we got there, we decided to go and pray in Mary's house. And while we were praying there, we met this really, really old, old Franciscan. Like, really old. And like, living the life. He had patches all over his habit from sewing them back on. Barefoot big gray beard and he looked at us and we looked at him and we said do you work here and he said yes I take care of the place and I said we I bet you've seen some amazing miracles and like how long have you been here he's been he said a long time <laughs> I was like I never would have guessed that and as he was sitting there I said what's the greatest miracle you've ever seen and he said come with me and he took us to this little room where there were crutches and wheelchairs and all this, braces. And he said, you see that wheelchair right there? We're like, yeah. He's like, that belonged to a man who at the age of 24 had been hit on a head-on car accident by a drunk driver. His wife and three kids were killed. He was paralyzed from the neck down. And we're like, wow, is that his wheelchair? And in like 20 years after this catastrophic accident, he came here. He prayed. He went to confession. He received the anointing of the sick and he drank from the spring. And we're like, did he walk? And he's like, he stood up and walked. And we're like, that's the most amazing miracle I've ever heard of in my entire life. And the old man looked and he said, boys, I didn't tell you the miracle. I'm like, what are you talking about? The guy was paralyzed. Now he walks. And the man said this, the miracle is not the physical healing. The miracle is that through all that he suffered, through all of the injustice, that was dealt to him. For 20 years of his life confined to a wheelchair, he never lost his faith. 
that God was his father providing for his every need. That guy was reckless in his faith. People probably thought he was stupid. And although not canonized, he was a saint. My friends, do we take God seriously? Or do we play games in our faith? Do we rationalize and justify when we know what the Lord is asking of us? There are things right now that the Lord has been asking of you, maybe to do or to give up, for years. You can be free. It may take time, but you can be free. Remember, I'll close with this story. When I was a dumb teenager, my brother and I, we liked to play a lot of games together, reckless games, and one of them was we would hang on to the back of the car with a skateboard, and one guy would drive. And at a certain point, you know, it's, it's fun. At about five miles an hour, it's fun. But because my brother's my brother, it went to 10 miles an hour, and then to 15 miles an hour. And on a, you know, and here's the crazy part. I could have let go at any time. But as it kept getting worse and worse, I kept holding tighter and tighter. And this is the life of sin. As our sin grows, we hang on to it harder and harder because if we let go, we don't know what's going to happen. You can let go. You can let go. God has said that he will catch us. You don't have to hang on anymore in this Mass. Let us bring whatever it is. Let us lay it at the foot of this altar. And let us be free. And from this day forward, to take God seriously.